have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn once again this week to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, the ninth chapter. While you're turning there, I'll ask you, what are your expectations for 2015? What are your expectations for 2015? Not your resolutions, because we all know what happens to resolutions by about February 1st, if we even keep them that long. Because often our resolutions are self-determined and self-powered. So I want us to think about expectations this morning. Great expectations. Not presumptuous expectations, not demanding expectations, but humble expectations that are great because they find their origin in the character of God and they find their realization in the power of God. What can we expect God to do in 2015? That's what I want us to think about this morning as we come Once again to Isaiah chapter 9, the verses 6 and 7, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this is the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Uh, Now, Spirit, we pray that you would... uh, Break the bread of your word uh, and feed us this morning. Nourish us, empower us, change us, transform us by the work of your truth joined with your spirit. Commit ourselves to you now and to the truth of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. For the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at these two verses that are Isaiah's description of the coming Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. We've seen that Jesus is God's gift to us and that in the person of Jesus, God makes provision for our greatest needs. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our Prince of Peace. We've talked about all of that the course of the last couple of weeks. This morning we come to verse 7. And following immediately after this description of Jesus as the Prince of Peace comes the idea of government. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Listen, it takes great faith for us to believe this because we have never seen an expression of it, never ever in human history. There have been good governments. There have been stable governments that have done good things. But each of those governments, at some point, have come to an end. Think about our own country for just a moment. And choose your favorite president, the one that you thought was really good. Republican or Democrat? Wait, there was never good. Just kidding. (laughs) 
Living or dead, I don't care. You choose. Whoever you choose, you have chosen because you believed he led well. You believe he accomplished great things for this country. You believe that America is a better place because he was in office. Maybe you believe that had he been able to continue in office, he would have done other great things while he was in office. You believe that America was a place of comfort and security and peace. Now, magnify those feelings a thousand times. Magnify them 10,000 times and you arrive at the comfort and the peace and the security that is ours because the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ will never, ever come to an end. He's never going to leave office, ever. Prophet, priest, and king, always. The goodness that's Jesus, the rightness that is Jesus, the fairness, the perfect justice that is Jesus, the social welfare that with Jesus is perfectly balanced, the wisdom, all of it, all of it will never come to an end. Jesus is now and forever will be king as he rules in our hearts now and someday in the future in his perfect kingdom. And that's why when we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about the two aspects of it. It is a reality right now in our present. Jesus says things like this. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. So repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So the kingdom of God is here right now. But there's an aspect of it that's yet to come. Jesus also talked about going away, but that he would come back on the clouds with power and glory. Thessalonians uh, 1, the Apostle Paul writes of a future day when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet. Then, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when all these things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. And so there is a sense in which the fullness of the kingdom of God is yet to come. It's yet to be experienced. But ultimately, the kingdom of God is spiritual. This is what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room. Or or, or at the end of his life, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So the kingdom of God, it's a spiritual reality. It has an outward form, the church, the church through which the world is blessed, even with material blessings. We can think of schools and hospitals and orphanages that have been built around the world for 2,000 years as a way of spreading the gospel. But the true dominion of the kingdom of God is in the souls of people. That's why Christ came. To establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of people. It's part of God's plan. And that's why Isaiah prophesies it here in verse 7. The coming Christ will come to establish the kingdom. The coming Christ will uphold the kingdom right now and from this time on and forever. The coming Christ will make it possible for you and for me to be part of that kingdom. 
Because when the, the Spirit of God has united you with God the Father through faith in Jesus the Son, you become part of that kingdom. If you're here this morning and you are united with God the Father through faith in Christ the Son, you are part of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about in his word. And so what I want us to think about for the next few moments is, is what is the nature? What's the nature of this kingdom? And what is your place in it? And what is my place in it? One word in verse 7 keeps jumping out at me. And it's this word increase. Increase. Of the increase of his government, his kingdom, there will be no end. Listen. Increase is the nature of the kingdom of God. The word that's translated increase is used only twice in Scripture, both times in Isaiah, once here, and once in Isaiah 33, 23, which reads, Then an abundance of spoils will be divided, and even the lame will carry off plunder. So increase and abundance. Increase and abundance, that's the nature of the kingdom that Christ has made us a part. And so verse 7 here in Isaiah is a description of a wide, expanding, ever-growing, unlimited empire of peace. So that should also describe our expectations. Our eight great expectations should be for increase and abundance and not for meagerness or decrease or decline. Does not Jesus say in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it, what? Abundantly. Have we not pictured in our mind's eye as we've heard the story of Jesus feeding of more than 5,000 people with the five loaves and the two fish? After everyone had been fed and completely satisfied, there we have pictured the 12 baskets full and overflowing with leftovers. Abundance. Even the prodigal son knew the abundance of his father's household. When he was living away, he said to himself, wait, even my father's servants have an abundance of bread. So when the prodigal returned to the home of his father, did his father not put the best robe on his back and a ring on his finger? And how did the father celebrate the return of his prodigal son? With with a, a tapas bar, a little bitty tiny portion? Finger foods? Appetizers? No! The father killed the fatted calf and put on a great feast for his son. Abundance. Jesus says, for the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. Get that in our minds, in our hearts. With Jesus, there's always increase, always abundance. So what does that abundance look like in your life for 2015? Don't worry, I'm not going to go off the tracks here into... Uh, the prosperity gospel, though I am letting my hair grow. If I like, slick back a little bit more, I'll look the part, you know. Name it and claim it. You're a child of the king. No, no, no. What God does with your stuff in the coming year, what God does with your finances, that's God's business. But I know this. Whatever you and I accumulate, I know that rust can corrode it and moths can eat it and thieves can break in and steal it, even if those are government-sanctioned Thieves. What we, I, I, (laughs) 
I got to stop. <laughs> we need to talk about an increase and an abundance. You know, something that's beyond the reach of decay, something that cannot spoil or perish. The increase of the kingdom in you and in the world. So here is my great expectation. Here it is for 2015. And I hope you will share this great expectation for your life. I'm stealing it. I'm stealing it from John the Baptist, who said this. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. More of Jesus, less of me. And when John made this profound statement, some people were trying to stir him up. Stir him up to to jealousy. They said to him, hey, John, that guy that was with you, i.e. Jesus, well, now he has gone off on his own and he is on the other side of the Jordan and he is baptizing and everybody is following after him. What are you going to do about it, John? Well, what a surprise those people received from John's response. John did not say, what? What is this? Who, who does he think he is? I, I was here first. Why, I'm the one that baptized him. What do you mean everybody is going out to him? I've got to stop him. What will happen to my ministry? No. John simply responds, he, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. More of Jesus, less of me. More of what Jesus wants for my life, less of what I want for my life. More of how Jesus wants me to act, less of how I want to act. More of how Jesus wants me to think, less about what I want to think about. More Jesus time, less me time. I must decrease, he must increase. That's a great expectation. And that's the nature of the kingdom. The Spirit of God has been placed within us and the gospel has been implanted in our hearts. And so we must expect that the Spirit of God and the truth of God will impact every part of our lives. Scripture tells us, do not quench the Spirit. See, in our spirits, we, t- we tend toward self. That's our nature. We tend toward indolence, and indifference, spiritually speaking. Too often we ignore the things of the Spirit, the proddings and the promptings of the Spirit. It's like, don't ask, don't tell, no, shh, don't speak to me. Not to quench the Spirit means that you and I will be intentional. Intentional. In seeking the Spirit to, to, to stir us up, to stir the, the sparks, and to fan them, and that burst into flames of pure thoughts and holy actions. And devotion to Christ. John Calvin writes this of Isaiah 7, of Isaiah 9 7, and the kingdom of God. Being spiritual, it is established by the power of the Holy Spirit. In a word, all these things must be viewed as referring to the inner man. That is, when we are regenerated by God to true righteousness. Outward righteousness, indeed, follows afterwards, but it must be preceded by that renovation, that renovation of the mind and heart. 
And so our expectation for 2015 should be for this continued renovation. Spirit of God, work overtime on this project, this renovation project of my life. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. The Spirit has been given to us so that this can be a reality. You and I don't have to long for change in our lives as if that change will never come. Instead, we can rightly expect that it will happen. The Word of God, 2 Corinthians 9, says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. 2 Thessalonians 1, We ought always to give thanks to God for you because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Hear it over and over again. Increase and abundance. Why should it not be true when you and I are indwelled by the Spirit of God? So the question is, when will you begin seeking the increase? When will you start looking for the abundance? What are you willing to commit to bring about the increase? You and I, we have to decide how we're going to partner with the Spirit of God and the Word of God so that Jesus increases in us and self-decreases. What keeps you from an abundance mentality? Maybe it's lack of faith. You know, if we trust God for increase, if we trust God for abundance and God doesn't do the renovation, if God doesn't come through, then, well, how are we going to defend God to ourselves? How will we continue to believe Him? Listen, our job is to have increased expectations. Our job is to have abundance expectations, spiritually speaking, and then we entrust the abundance experience to our sovereign God. Because he knows best how and when and where to bring the transformation and the renovation to our lives. Paul writes, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God gives the increase. Let's at least be done with meagerness mentality here in 2015. Why not have great expectations for great inner transformation and renovation? Let's pray for it, that Jesus would increase and that we would decrease. Okay? Second expectation. As the Spirit does His renovation, as Jesus increases in each of us, then we should expect that the kingdom of God would increase through us. First in us and then through us. Why aren't more Americans atheists? Why aren't more Americans atheists? That's the title of an article that appeared in Politico magazine back in August. It's not a Christian magazine. It's not even a a conservative magazine. But here's the part of the article. You might think that America would be fertile ground for the rise of atheism. After all, the United States is the most scientifically advanced society in human existence. Once upon a time, so the story goes, people believed that the world was young 
and flat. That God made everything, including people, in a few frantically busy days, and that earthquakes and thunderstorms were examples of his furious rage, which you ignored at your peril. Into this sorry state of affairs emerged a thing called science. And despite the best efforts of ignorant, self-serving clerics, that's me, oh, who wished to keep the people in utmost darkness, science proved that none of the above was true. Gradually, wonderfully, the human race matured with every confident scientific step forward, pushing our infantile, crumbling ideas of the divine closer to oblivion. Extinguished theologians lie about the cradle of every science as Thomas Huxley, the English biologist known as Darwin's bulldog, memorably put it. That's the story. The problem with this particular creation myth is that while it's true enough to be believable, it's not true enough to be true. If atheism were a function of science and progress, then surely America, from the late 19th century of the world's most self-consciously modern and scientific nation, would become its atheistic capital. It didn't. Why not? Because the kingdom of God will have no end. We are not just one scientific discovery away from disproving God and bringing his kingdom to an end. God is too real for that and his spirit is too strong for that. And people who've experienced the reality of of Christ can be beaten and tortured and put to death, often with great joy, for the sake of the one that they know is real. People who have experienced the reality of Christ can make an enormous difference in the world in which they live. You and I, as we experience the reality of Christ, can make a tremendous difference in the culture in which we live right now. In the upper room, Jesus was praying to the Father. And he said, My prayer is not that you take them, the disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So you and I have to be part of the world. We've got to mix it up with the world. You know, life on life, believer and unbeliever together. If Jesus had uh, cloistered or sequestered himself in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, people who loved him and, and he loved them back and they just all loved one another, that's where Jesus had lived and stayed if he had never eaten with tax collectors, if he had never eaten with sinners and never talked to prostitutes or adulterers or adulteresses, what impact would his life have had on the people who needed him the most? How will you and I advance the kingdom of God in our culture if we are never with our culture? We carry a precious treasure in us. Wherever we go, We carry the life of Christ in us wherever we go. We carry the truth of the gospel on our lips. 
Paul calls the gospel dunamis, power, dynamite. The dynamite, the power of God to bring change. Isaiah predicts the power here in this verse. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The power of the gospel, the spread of the gospel, the growth of the gospel cannot be stopped. This is the testimony of Scripture. Peter preached the gospel for the first time on the day of Pentecost. And what happened? You know what happened. 3,000 people believed. Kingdom increase. The early church found time to eat together and pray together and study together while they were living their lives. And what happened? Scripture says the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. There's kingdom increase. Acts 6-7, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Kingdom increase. Acts 9-31, the church throughout Galilee, Judea and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Kingdom increase. Acts 12-24, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Kingdom increase. Increase. I want to quote John Calvin again. I don't think I've ever done that twice in one sermon. But here we go. Calvin says, Though the kingdom of Christ is in such a condition that it appears as if it were about to perish at every moment, and that's what we believe, isn't it? Oh, it's about to perish. Yet God not only protects and defends it, but he also extends its boundaries far and wide and then preserves and carries it forward in uninterrupted progression to eternity. We ought firmly to believe this, that the frequency of those shocks by which the church is shaken may not weaken our faith when we learn that amid the mad outcry and violent attacks of the enemies, the kingdom of Christ stands firm through the invincible power of God. So that... Though the whole world should oppose and resist it, it will remain through all ages. We must not judge this of its stability from the present appearance of things, but from the promise which assures us of its continuance and of its constant increase. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Either what God says here is true or it's not. (laughs) Only option. Either what God says here about his kingdom is true or it isn't true. And since we know that God never lies, what he says to us is true. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. I know that many of us long for the return of Christ. The day that he'll come and he'll set all things right. We long for that day because we'll be done. Done with struggling with sin. Done with struggling with sorrow and sadness. Done with the sadness of brokenness and brokenness in our lives and relationships. So because of that, we should long for the return of Christ. But when we grasp the reality and the truth we've looked at this morning from here in Isaiah 9-7, maybe it's also true that we should say, Not yet, Lord. Not yet. Increase more in me first. Not yet, Lord. There are other people that need to be brought into your kingdom. Look at the end of verse 7 in Isaiah 9. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
See, the growth of His kingdom, the expansion, the increase, the abundance of it, it is the passion of the Lord. God's love flames for His kingdom and for the people that He draws into it. We don't measure the capacity of growth of the kingdom by how it grows through us. We shouldn't use our experience as the standard. We look to God's promise. Because perhaps you and I haven't believed the promise. Perhaps we haven't had an abundant expectation or abundant behavior even when it comes to investing our lives in the kingdom. And so perhaps the kingdom has not grown through us. But that's our loss. That's not God's inability. God will bring the growth. He'll bring it. He'll bring the increase. He'll bring the abundance through people and through churches who share His zeal and share His passion for the growth of the kingdom because of the increase of His kingdom, there will be no end. So we need to have great expectations for great growth in 2015 here in Charleston because we are here. Why should we not have that expectation? We have the Spirit of the living God We have the truth of the gospel. We're willing to take the gospel to the streets. What keeps us from an abundance mentality? From praying, Lord, make us have to go to two services by the end of this year because of all the people that you're going to bring to faith in us and through us. Because you and I have shared the gospel. What do we need? Just another 100, 150 people? I don't... Probably won't meet that many people next year. That's about how many are here. That just means one person for each of you, for each of us. One person with whom we share the gospel. One person that we see the Lord bring to faith in Christ. One person enfolded into this wonderful community that we have here at Redeemer. One person. That's not even abundance. (laughs) That's just one. Why not expect that? Is it lack of faith? Well, Lord... We say we want you to do that and and you don't do that, then how are we going to defend you? How are we going to trust you? Our job is to have the increased expectation. Our job is to have the abundance expectation and entrust the abundance experience to our sovereign God. Your job and my job is to partner with God and make the commitments to which he calls us to do the work of his kingdom Make the sacrifices to which he calls us to extend his kingdom. Because we know the nature of the kingdom of God is to be both widespread and pervasive in our lives and in the world. Expect that it will be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again we... Call now on the work and the power of your spirit to inspire the faith in us that we need to believe the truth of this passage. Because we know often, Lord, spiritually speaking, we do live with an attitude of meagerness. We expect decline and decrease. And the very nature of your kingdom is the opposite of that. You are the God of the universe. All power belongs to you. 
you can do all things. And Lord, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us an abundance mentality in this coming year. That we would trust you to grow us up in Christ. So that at the end of 2015, we can look back in our lives and see evidence about how you have become greater in us and we have become less. Less self-centered, less self-consumed, more focused on you and your kingdom and the work of your kingdom. What really, really matters. So Father, we pray that you would make that a reality in our lives as your renovation project goes on. May it progress by leaps and bounds in this year, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.